Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. All right, good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. These verses that we're going to look at this morning are verses that describe suffering and Christian hope. Things that don't necessarily always go together in our theology. And you know, it is Palm Sunday. You see the palms in front of us. It's Palm Sunday. It's a, it's a day of celebration. But going back to the original Palm Sunday, the reason that that was a celebration, the reason that that was full of, uh, of exclamation and, and proclamation of Hosanna was because people were suffering. Because people were looking for a deliverer. People were looking for a rescuer. They were looking for hope. And so we don't have to deny uh, suffering in order to celebrate. We don't have to deny suffering in order to rejoice. In fact, that's what Paul says, is that we rejoice in our sufferings. And that our sufferings ultimately lead to hope. You know, just this week, we've had all kinds of, of sufferings. And there's no way that I could exhaust uh, all the ways that, that you are suffering, that, that those within the congregation or those listening online are experiencing suffering. Just 48 hours ago, we were preparing our home for potential tornadoes, right? I had my kids pack three days of clothes in a suitcase in case a tornado hit and we just lost our whole house. I mean, that, that, that's the nature of the world we live in. Like if, if just in an instant, everything just goes away, we'll at least have a suitcase with three clothes, uh, three changes of clothing. Uh, thankfully, uh, we were spared. And, and to my knowledge, I don't know anyone in, in, in my vicinity, in my sphere that suffered serious damages, uh, but only by the grace of God. Yesterday, I was talking with a woman in our community who is pregnant. And I was celebrating that, rejoicing with her over that. Um, but she told me that her OB told her that this child is likely to die. I'm like, unbelievable. I was speaking on the phone with a woman who is in a nursing home, one of our senior saints, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I, visiting with her on the phone. And she said, Brian, I, I am certain that God is sovereign over my life. And listen, she said, and by his grace, I will be satisfied by it. This is a woman that is, is potentially about to be transferred into a memory care unit. She's in the final stages of her life. She knows it. She's not where she wants to be in her home, but is instead being cared for in a nursing home. And she said, by God's grace, I will become satisfied in it. Right? There, there's, no, there's no shortage of suffering. If I know your story at all, I know that there is suffering involved. If I know you at all, I know that, that there is suffering. Either you've, you've endured suffering you are enduring suffering or you are about to endure suffering. And for some people, that's all of the above. But the Christian hope is not one of 
absence of suffering. Our, our faith has not failed us because we suffer. Rather, the Christian hope is, is one of delayed gratification. It, our hope, the hope of a Christian, is set on life to come, not on this life. The hope of the Christian is that one day we are going to see things the way they really are. I, I tried to get a tapestry, but I wasn't able to secure one. Uh, if you have a great tapestry, you should let me know. I'll use it again in the future in an illustration. But, but you know, the backside of a tapestry, if you've ever seen the backside of a tapestry, what does it look like? It's a mess. I, I spoke to one lady who said, she said that she makes the backside of her tapestries neat. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, that's not going to help me. <clears throat> but generally speaking, the artist is not concerned with the backside of the tapestry. And so it looks like a rat's nest. It's, it's messy, it's tangled, it's unintelligible. You can't discern what it really looks like. And that's sort of what life is like today for us. It's like looking on the backside of the tapestry. God, I'm sure that you're working something out, but I can't discern it. I can't make sense of it. But on the day that we see face-to-face, as Paul says, on the day that we are with Jesus, breathing the air of heaven, as the kids saying this morning, we will finally see the front side, and the front side is the, is the point. The, the front side is what it's all about. That's what God is working. That's the masterpiece. That's the piece of art. And on that day, we will see it, and it will make sense, and it will be worth it. What I have experienced in 15 years of ministry is that Many Christians unwittingly embrace a theology of glory. This is fairly common among Westerners. Other Christians don't have the luxury of a theology of glory, but many Western Christians embrace a theology of glory. Here's what I mean. They're convinced that God must reward obedience in this life. He blesses faithfulness and obedience. Yes, that's true. The Bible tells us that. He blesses faithfulness and obedience. But theology of glory goes beyond that. It presumes that God owes us for our obedience and faithfulness. My wife has shared before in women's gatherings that this was our theology as young 20-somethings. She describes it as a plus B must equal C. Our good choices and our good behavior must lead to a good life. This theology of glory, though, is put to the test when the Lord acts in a manner that seems inconsistent with our behavior, when A plus B does not lead to C. Take, for example, a young couple. He serves in the military. She's a faithful, willing military spouse. They're involved in chapel. They go to a, a, a ministry off post. They try to be good, respectable people. They respect their parents. They tithe. They, they are good influences on people around them. Granted, they have their failings, but for the most part, these are upstanding people. And then the Lord drops a diagnosis of infant acute lymphoblastic leukemia on their six-week-old daughter. The theology of glory does not compute. 
in that experience. Dad is in Kuwait. Mom is in Germany. Uh, Doctors and nurses barely speak English. Fast forward two years and they're standing over their daughter's casket. Theology of glory does not compute. It, It does not bear out. Instead, the theology of the cross surfaces and they finally understand what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Theology of glory says if you obey, you will be blessed. If you're faithful, God owes you. He will only give you what you have determined is good. Theology of the cross, however, says that the most faithful one ever was crushed by God, rejected by man, and hung upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins that he did not commit. Theology of the cross tells us to take up our cross like Jesus commanded us to and to look not to this life for glory, but to the life to come. Where is glory found? It's found in the life to come. The theology of the cross tells us to count the cost and to willingly lay down our lives for his name's sake and to lift our gaze from the suffering in this life and set it firmly in the life to come. In today's passage, Romans chapter five, verses three through five, we're gonna read that suffering produces hope. that, That does not logically follow, that suffering produces hope. For most of us, hope is associated with the absence of suffering, the relief from suffering, but in this passage we read God's inspired word, which means it's true, which means it's right, always. We read that suffering produces hope. Last week in Romans 5.2, we read that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And what that means is that our hope and our our ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment is set in God's glory, meaning that, that God's glory takes the supreme value in our lives. That is the highest good is God's glory. And because we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, whatever suffering we endure in this life to the extent that it serves God's glory. And I'm, I'm not talking about you go and get yourself in trouble recklessly. I'm talking about the suffering that the Lord allows to happen to us for his name's sake. We embrace it as glorifying to God and good for us, even if it feels awful. That is suffering and Christian hope. Let's read the passage here and then we'll dissect it verse by verse. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, 
And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful for your grace in, in, in protecting us this past week from severe weather, tornadoes. I pray for those in Wynn, Arkansas, in Iowa City, and in other parts of our country, Lord, where your hand did not stay the wind, did not stop the destruction. I pray, Lord, that you would still show yourself glorious even there. And Lord, I pray for us as we walk through our own storms of life, individually, collectively, I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to rid ourselves of the theology of glory and take upon ourselves our own cross as you have commanded us to do and to suffer well for your name's sake and to hope in the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says not only that, verse 3, not only that, that continues the thought from verse 2. The third consequence of our justification, meaning the third consequence of us being saved by faith, is that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, and not only that, so, so the third consequence of our salvation is that we have, we have seen the glory of God as supreme value in our lives. We live for the glory of God. That's what Paul is saying. We live for the glory of God. And not only that, now we read, in addition to these consequences, that we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. We are fully convinced that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And we'll get there, that's Romans eight twenty eight. But the Christian is fully convinced that our sovereign God is working all things for good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Meaning that no matter how tough life gets, no matter, no matter how much of a, of a rotten break we get in life, we are convinced that God is sovereign and sovereignly working all things for our good. Paul does not say that God only does things that feel good. There's a huge difference between God only does things that feel good and God works all things for your good. So we're fully convinced that God works all things for good and we're fully convicted that God is ultimately using all things for his own glory. And so we embrace suffering as good for us and glorifying for him. And thus we rejoice. Now, notice that Paul doesn't say we rejoice that we are suffering. We are happy that we are unhappy. We are happy that we endure hardships. No, he says we rejoice in our suffering. R.C. Sproul brings some clarity here when he says he was not saying that tribulation is a joyful, pleasant, pleasurable experience. Rather, he is saying that because we have been justified, even the tribulations and afflictions we experience 
can be an occasion for joy. So when, when everything around us, when all of our world says that you ought to despair and be despondent and be anxious and be wearisome and be worn out and be afraid, God's word says, and the Christian hope says, rejoice, even in those moments. Even in those moments. We rejoice because our gaze is fixed on Jesus. This requires something on your part. I think about Romans 12, verse 1 which says that we lay down our lives, as our bodies as living sacrifices. I think that what Paul had in mind when he said that, that, that this is our spiritual worship, laying down our bodies as living sacrifices, is the same kind of mindset that caused Paul to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In other words, it's saying that we are walking dead men and women. That whatever the Lord wants for us, that is good. Whatever lot in life, whatever God chooses us to go through, that is good and glorifying to him. And I'm okay with that. That requires us to have that kind of mindset. As long as we think that God owes us something and that we, rather than he, is supreme in our life, then we will rebuff whenever something doesn't go our way. Amen? But we need to recognize that when we rebuff, when something doesn't go our way, and when we pout and when we get angry, that is revealing something about our hearts toward God. Do you understand? And that is an occasion for us to repent. And that is part of the process. In fact, we're going to see that in just a moment, the process of God using suffering to get to hope. But our gaze is fixed on Jesus. Our hope is in his glory. We are anxiously awaiting the glory that is to come, the glory beyond all comparison. As Paul says, as Peter says, the hope, the glory that's coming is beyond comparison to this light and momentary affliction. This requires us to retrain our, our minds. Until we're saved, until we're born again, we go through life imagining that life is all about us and pursuing what, what is best for me, myself, and I. And then all of a sudden we're born again and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and the Lord says, no, you now live for me. And this requires us to change our minds to be renewed, to be transformed, to believe that the Lord uses our suffering for our good and for his glory and in fact, we suffer, Paul continues here, he says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. We don't, we're not masochists. We don't just want suffering for suffering's sake. No, we rejoice in our suffering because we know that God uses suffering to produce in us endurance. That word translated suffering there literally means to remain under pressure. So many of us, when we feel pressure, what do we do? We move away from pressure. We, we, we seek any way we can to get out from under 
pressure. And listen, folks, I'm no different than anyone else. I don't like being under pressure. It's our natural instinct. However, the Lord forces us at times to remain under pressure. He says no when we say, Lord, that's enough. He says no, it's not. I'm working something. I'm doing something in your life. I'm not going to let you evade this. I'm going to keep the pressure on you because it produces endurance. Now, I want you to consider athletes who do this willingly. They discipline their mind in, in incurring the pressure, physical pressure on their bodies, on their lungs, on their hearts to greater and greater and greater degrees. And the most successful athletes are the ones who have their minds most fixed on the goal, the glory, and endure the pressure the longest. Christians should also regard suffering as a similar means of growing in their faith and endure the pain of suffering with their minds fixed on the goal of heaven, right? When, when you, let me ask you this question. When are you most anticipating heaven? When, when you're suffering, right? Is it when everything is right in your life and, and, and you just couldn't be happier with everything around you? No, it's when everything is going wrong. And you're like, Lord, how long before I get the relief that you've promised in heaven? Relief that will never end. Christians ought to endure suffering with their minds fixed on heaven. Heaven is where heaven is. We want heaven on earth, but heaven is in heaven. And we are on earth. And until we are in heaven, we can expect to endure suffering. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, do you not know that in a race, all racers run, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? In other words, they're all competing. They all push themselves. Only one's going to win. He says, so run that you may obtain it. In, in other words, he's saying, look to the athletes, look to the racers, Mimic them, imitate them. They discipline themselves because of the glory of winning. You also should run so that you win, so that you get there, so that you're faithful, so that when you stand before Jesus, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the rest of your master. Amen. We won't rest here. And the Lord's like, you're working now. The time for rest is coming. Be faithful now, endure now, glory later. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Just like this, right? It's just greenery. And it's going to rot away. He says, you and I run for an imperishable wreath. So whatever we are given in eternal life will stay forever. It'll never tarnish, it'll never fade, 
It'll never, it'll never uh, wear out, never reduce. We'll never get old uh, with it. It'll, it'll never grow old to us. It will never perish. Verse 4 continues, and endurance produces character. God, I want to be, be a man after your own heart. I want to be a godly man. I want to be a faithful husband. I want to love my wife the way Christ loves the church. I want to raise my kids up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I want to be that godly man after your own heart. Endure suffering. No. God, I just, just pull out the impurities of my life, of my heart, the greed, the laziness, the selfishness. Endure suffering. No. God, please, why aren't you changing my heart? Why do I still love the things that I used to love? Endure suffering. Oh. You're refining my character through suffering. Yeah, like fire refines gold. And it's the same concept here. The word used here for character is dokumen. Dokumen. And it's directly associated with the word in James 1.3, dokimion, which, which we translate testing in James 1.3, as well as 1 Peter 1.7. Let's read here. Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. That's the same, it's the same family of words between tested and character. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold though it, uh, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer said, it is doubtful that God can use a man greatly before he has hurt him deeply. And the question is, are you willing to go through that school? God, I want to be used for your glory. I want nothing more, God, than to, than to glorify you alone. I want my life to count. I want to be a man that, that, that when, when people look at, at his life, that they say, glory be to God. What an amazing Savior, what an amazing king that man served. Are you willing to go through the school that teaches you to live only for his glory? The school of suffering. The school is enduring suffering. Suffering forces us to draw near to the Father and to come to know him. You see, that's what happens when we suffer. You know, when, when, when you're laying in bed at night and the world is like weighing on you like a ton of bricks and you're like, Father, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to change this. I don't know how to respond in this situation. And, and you're communing with the Lord in desperation and you're pressing in to him, to the, 
you're, you're drawing near to the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. And what do you experience? You find help. You find comfort. Even if you don't find relief and release from the suffering, you find that your father is not distant. You find that your father, your heavenly father, is, in fact, the good shepherd. And you find that you are, in fact, his sheep. The more we come to know him, the more we experience of him, the more we also come to understand ourselves. You see, the closer we get to the Lord, the more we press in, the more we understand his heart, the more we understand our own heart and the less content and satisfied we are with it. And we say, Lord, change me. By your grace, I will become satisfied with my conditions. And the Lord begins to change our character, who we are, what we think, what we love, what we want. He begins to change our character. Kent Hughes calls this character without, impun- without impurities, like gold, though it perishes, is refined by fire. Imagine on that day, judgment day, when somehow we are able to see our character visibly. And we look back at all the suffering that we've endured and we then praise the Lord for removing through that hard process all the impurities from our life. I can assure you it will be worth it. We will thank the Lord for all of our suffering. Because character is the fruit of endurance, it produces hope. When you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, you've pressed in close to the good shepherd, you find that he is good. You find that he does not fail you. You experience it in real life. It's like what Job said in Job 42, 5. Job says, before he suffered, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, people had told me about this God. I I sort of had a knowledge about him, what he was like. But in his suffering, he says, but now my eye sees you. What's the difference between having heard about something and your eyes seeing it? Uh, Imagine... Imagine the difference if you've ever been to Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or Mount Rushmore or some other amazing spectacle, some other amazing sight, and people have told you how impressive it is, and then you go and see it with your own eyes. What's the difference between them? It's everything. Am I right? Right? And so Job is saying, in my suffering or before my suffering, I had heard of you. I was aware of you, but in my suffering, I experience you, and I see you with my own eyes. In the course of suffering many times and in many ways, character is developed, and your hope shifts from things of the world to him. 
And the reality is that only he offers real hope. We hope in all kinds of things, but hope in him is the only real hope. But until things are removed from us that we love and care for, we still hope in them. And so the Lord in his grace mercifully removes the things that will ultimately fail us so that we come to hope in the one who offers real hope. Those with the most authentic joy are those who have been through the refiner's fire and they have tasted and they have seen that the Lord is good. And they've come out on the other side more confident that he is a good father, that he loves his children. It's for this reason that Paul continues, and hope does not put us to shame. Now, that's an Old Testament concept. Basically, those who trust in the Lord are going to find that he's trustworthy. Those that put their trust in the Lord are going to find that he's worthy, that he's not going to fail them. Promises like Psalm 20, verse 7, which says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In Isaiah 40, verse 31, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So the Old Testament over and over and over again says that God is worthy of our hope, worthy of our trust. When you put your faith and your hope and your trust into the trustworthy one, you will not be put to shame. You're not going to find that in the moment of need that he fails you. In the same way, those who hope in Christ will never be put to shame. They cannot be. He will never fail. You will, find that you have, you will never find that you have wasted your hope or that your hope in Christ is not fully sufficient. If you trust in Christ for salvation, you will have it. You will be saved. You will be spared the shame of judgment and the humiliation of eternal separation from God. Those who do not trust in Jesus, those who do not hope in him, those who instead hope in their own righteousness or in their own virtue or in anything else, those who do not hope in Christ, will be put to shame, but those who hope in Christ will never be put to shame. And yet still people, even Christians, put their trust in many other things than Christ today. Things like their jobs. Think about this, folks. And again, there's no way to exhaust this. I couldn't possibly know what you have put your hope in. But here's just a few things that I know because I have done it. And the Lord continues to reveal to me that I have hope in things that will ultimately fail me. But things like your job or your career or your looks or your possessions or your zip code or the vehicle that you drive or your intellect or politics I think there are still people that like 
Psalm 20, verse 7, chariots and horses put their hope in military power. There are people who even hope in the church. And that's why we have this thing called church hurt. And people walk away from Jesus because other Christians who are hurt and hurting have hurt them. Because they put their hope in the church. But all of these things are flimsy and will fail you at some point. All of these things. They'll fail to produce whatever, whatever it is that you were, you were hoping they would produce. They will fail to do that. They will fail to come through in your moment of need. They will fail to satisfy. And this is exactly what I experienced when I was driving home after my daughter Kennedy passed away. February 7th, 2006, 1.45 a.m., riding home in my Tahoe that I just bought six months earlier, I my mind instinctively in my grief began to search, clamor for some kind of comfort. And I can promise you that each one of these things that I thought about when I bought them or attained them, uh, obtained them, they promised me that they would make me happy. I promise you that when I bought the Tahoe, the Tahoe told me, I'll make you happy. You buy me, I'll make you happy. I'll fulfill that need of yours. The same thing happened with my house and the acre and the pool and the dogs. We'll make you happy, Brian. When you need us, we'll be there for you to make you happy. My career, my education, all of that. I literally felt like I was standing in a circle. I'm driving home, I'm, I'm in the passenger seat. My worship pastor <clears throat> at my church was driving me home. My wife's in the back. In the way back is our empty stroller and car seat. Just imagine the moment, okay? Never to be fulfilled with our daughter again, way back in the back. Here we are driving home. And I'm, I feel like I'm in a circle, standing in a circle, surrounded by friends. Okay, you get the visual? And each one of the friends is one of these things that I had put my hope in. Each one of these friends was something that at one point had convinced me, I'll make you happy. I had bought the Tahoe six months before, the house seven months before, my truck eight months before. Listen, folks, you're talking about someone that was desperate. That I, was, I was the picture of that, the epitome of that. And one by one, it was as if they turned their back on me and walked away. I felt completely put to shame. And I will be honest with you, I am ashamed now that I ever hoped in those things in the first place. Because it is so obvious that those things would never fulfill a person in the loss of their daughter. But folks, you and I are still hoping in things to make us happy and to satisfy us that when life gets real, we'll be stripped away and you will be put to shame. But in Christ, you will never be put 
to shame. It was like scales fell off my eyes in that moment. And I heard the Lord say, not audibly, but I heard the Lord say, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'll give you a, a completely different direction in life. I'll cause you to live for something completely different. And it wasn't until all of these things had been shown to me to be what they really are that I finally saw the truth of who Jesus really is. What happened that night was a church man was born again. I had been in church for 16 years, from the age of, uh, really the age of 11. I was now 28, so 17 years. I'd been baptized, I guess, at 13 or so. I was a churchman, and I was born again by the Spirit of God. To use the language of Paul here in verse 5 as we wrap things up, Paul says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. This is why we will never be put to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that night, God poured his love into my heart through the Holy Spirit. I had been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I had been born again by the Spirit who is the guarantee, the seal of authenticity, the, the sign, the proof that I belong to God and that I am his child. Why is it that Christians can hope in their suffering? It is because we have been given the Holy Spirit who pours out, who continually dispenses God's love. Bishop Nigren tells us, when we realize that Paul never uses agape, which is the word for love here, that Paul never uses agape to express man's love for God, we shall not think that it is of man's love that Paul speaks in this verse. Agape, the love which God showed us in Christ, is for Paul so tremendous a fact that he regularly refrains from using the same word to express our love to God. So the Holy Spirit dispenses God's love for us and he loves us not because of anything that we've done but simply because he loves us. That is what agape means. This is why we can be so confident that we will not be put to shame when we hope in Christ because the Holy Spirit who indwells the life of every believer continually dispenses God's love for that person. That verb, poured, when it says has been poured, that, the, uh, that God's love has been poured into our hearts, that word poured takes the perfect sense, a perfect tense, indicating a permanent status. When the Holy Spirit is poured, uh, is given to us and, and pours in the love of God into our hearts, that is a permanent status that rests upon Christ's completed work. We're, we're, we're nearing the end of this justification by faith. This concept that by faith alone, we are made right with God. That is a one-time deal. We believe the gospel and we are justified and we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit and forever and ever, the Holy Spirit pours into our hearts 
that God loves us. That God gave up his only son to die for us. That we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now adopted as children of the Father. The fact that God loves us unconditionally and has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit reminds us that even if everyone hates us, even if everyone hates us, we can endure our suffering, that God will be faithful, and that come what may, one day we will receive an eternal weight of glory beyond our compare. That is the goal to which every born-again Christian fixes his or her eyes. One day, everything will be made right, and there will be an eternal weight of glory. And Father, you love me, and I know that I will never be put to shame. There's no turning aside, there's no turning back. We simply echo with Paul, Philippians 3.14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on, brother and sister. Endure suffering because endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope will never fail you. Speaking of suffering, Jesus does not ask us to do anything that he has not already done. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday prior to Passover. It's the Sunday that Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Jesus, who had the capacity and the capability of going into Jerusalem and completely overthrowing the Romans, which is what the Jews wanted him to do, when they called out Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, they were calling out, God, save us from the Romans. God, save us from our suffering in this life. We want glory now. And Jesus, who had the capacity to go in and answer that prayer, though it would be temporal, instead chose the path of the cross. And Sunday, everyone is calling out Hosanna in the highest. And by Friday morning, the same crowds are calling out, crucify him. And the one in whom we place our hope modeled for us the theology of the cross. Now, of course, what he did on the cross is completely different than what he calls us to do with our cross proverbially. He died on the cross for our sin, choosing suffering and obedience with delayed gratification and ultimate glory over glory here and now. And he calls his followers to take up their cross daily and deny themselves and follow him. And for that reason, this morning, we turn now to communion. And we remember the suffering and the sacrifice of our Savior, whom we love and adore and worship and proclaim. Paul tells us to examine our hearts Before we partake of communion, this is a Christian observance. This is a Christian ordinance. Thank you, Andrew. All kinds of words going through my mind there. 
This is for Christians, those who understand that Jesus Christ bled and died for them. Paul warns, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Brother and sister, I want to ask you this morning, do you hope in Christ? Do you hope in Christ? Or do you hope like I did in everything but him and add him as an extra, as a bonus, just in case? Are you willing to be used by God if it means that being used requires going through the school of suffering and endurance and character development? I can promise you that those who hope in Christ will never be put to shame. Amen? Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We come now, Lord, seeking your Uh, blessing, seeking your guidance, seeking your wisdom, seeking your grace. Father, there may be people here who do not know you, who do not hope in you, who do not trust in you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that like me, on that highway, in the middle of the night, that you would cause scales to fall from their eyes, and they would right here, right now, place their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ, who died for them and who rose to give them life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.